You're listening to Season 8 of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a weekly podcast covering the entirety of sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam, researching its influences, examining its themes, and discussing how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world, from 1979 to today. This is episode 8.9. We considered ourselves to be a powerful culture, and we are your hosts. I'm Tom, Gundam fan, and I'm going to release this episode at precisely 12.01 a.m. Eastern, because a podcaster must always be on time. And I'm Nina, new to Stardust Memory, and I spent this whole episode waiting for new type ghosts. Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 738 patrons and subscribers. Thank you all, and special thanks to our newest supporters, Samuel H. and Nottingles. No tingles? Nottingles. You keep us genki. Did you know that MSB patrons get lots of fun perks? Depending on the tier, patrons get episodes a week before they go public, access to a patron-only Discord, bonus content, exclusive merch, and more. Check out the full list of benefits and sign up today at GundamPodcast.com Patreon. This week, Stardust Memory Episode 9, Soroman no Akumu, which means Nightmare of Solomon. Its English title is Nightmare of Solomon, and its original English title was Nightmare of Solomon. It's the only episode in the series where all three titles line up like that. It was released on March 19, 1992. The chief director was Imanishi Takashi, who also drew the storyboards. The episode director was Akane Kazuki. The script was written by Takahashi Ryosuke, his first contribution to the Gundam franchise. Takahashi is most famous for being the original creator and chief director of groundbreaking real robot-type mecha shows from the 80s, including Armored Trooper Vatoms, Blue Comet SPT Laisner, Fang of the Sun Dogram, and Panzer World Galliant. He also oversaw a handful of later projects in the same vein, like 1998's Gasaraki and 2006's Flag. Now, the recap. colony asteroid makes its way through the cold depths of space. Old men in Xeon uniforms meet in dark, abandoned rooms to debate their alliance with Delaz, while a young Haman Karn stares out the window and wonders how long they will have to wait. Far away, their advanced fleet has reached the Earth's sphere. A pre-recorded message from Delaz welcomes them, and when the Earth becomes just barely visible in the distance, all other activity ceases. A murmur rises and falls like a wave as every member of the fleet stares, awestruck, at the cradle of humanity. In the Competo restricted zone, the skirmishing has been constant. The Albion's pilots launch as quickly as their mobile suits can be repaired and resupplied, with barely time to eat or rest. Keith falls asleep in his cockpit and Cole, numb with fatigue, seems not to notice when people hand him drinks or congratulate him on his latest kills. He is short-tempered even with Nina, who seems more worried than hurt. Moncha tortures a captured enemy pilot, breaking the man's fingers while a guard leans nonchalant against the wall. 
Cole intervenes, but Mantra scoffs that following the rules won't help them win. Operation Stardust is in its final stages. Deleza's plan risks everything they have. If it fails, they will be back at square one. But he knows that if worst comes to worst, he will cancel the mission. As ever, he will willingly suffer humiliation if it means he lives to fight another day. 37 of his fleet's complement of mobile suits have already been destroyed. Neozeon's mechanics are as busy as those aboard the Albion, swarming over their mobile suits and making final preparations. Gato's preparations are a quieter affair. He is thinking of how many of his comrades died here during the one-year war, and that anything he achieves will be built on their sacrifice. At the same time that Admiral Wyatt is transferring to the Birmingham to begin the naval review, Gato is launching with his squad. The Albion's pilots enter the fray not long after, and Ko is consumed with thoughts of Gato, that if they could capture or kill Gato, this hell might finally end. Gato's squad split up. Two mobile suits stay with him as an escort, while the rest are a diversion. Initially, they overrun a defensive satellite in the Ramos sector. But then reinforcements arrive in the form of a seemingly endless group of gyms, plus Cole and his fellows. Aboard the Albion, the support staff huddle around radios, listening to the pilots for some idea of what's happening on the battlefield. Gato and his escort are on the opposite side of Competo, of Solomon, from the naval review. The area is full of memories for them, and thick with the abandoned remnants of the one-year war. Ships mobile suits, soldiers. They approach unobserved until an auto-sentry drone detects them and shoots down one of the two escort mobile suits. Gato destroys it, but not before it sends an alert to all of the nearby ships. Horror blooms on Synapse's face as he realizes where Gato is headed. He's breaking through! The Gundam Unit 1, with its full burners, is the only mobile suit with any hope of catching Gato in time. Keith is sent along for support, but Cole soon outstrips him, desperate to intercept the Unit 2. Dodging another auto-sentry gun and shooting straight through the thin defensive line of ships, Gato thinks to himself that success here will mean that the heroes who lost their lives in the One-Year War won't have died in vain. Faster and faster still, he flies up and over the asteroid until he can see the Federation Navy on the other side. Taking careful aim at the flagship, he declares, for the rebirth of the ideals of Xeon, and fires the Unit 2's nuclear bomb. Cole arrives too late. Okay, before we get into our regular discussion, I need to make sure that I'm understanding all of these different place names correctly and want to clarify with you. There are numerous references in the episode to Solomon. Mm -hmm. Nobody ever says the name Abawaku. And then there's also references to Confeito, Compeito. Right. Solomon is this whole area of space, right? It's not specifically the asteroid? Solomon is the asteroid. Oh. The okay. area around Solomon is the Solomon Sea sector of space. Okay. Put a few more S's in there. 
Abawaku was a different asteroid from Abawaku Solomon? Abawaku is a different asteroid. Okay. I guess I'm just getting confused about them because we have all these flashbacks from Gato and Delaz, and it was the Battle of Abawaku when they decided that they were retreating and surrendering so that they could fight on later. But here we are at Solomon, and he's still having very similar flashbacks, and he has a flashback to that battle. Yes, that I think is unnecessarily confusing. They've saved themselves some time and effort by reusing footage from that first episode, but they've made it quite confusing if you don't really have a grip on the uh, geography, astrography of the Universal Century. So yes, Abaku and Solomon were two different space fortresses. Okay. Solomon has been occupied by the Federation forces and renamed Confeito or Konpeito, depending on which language you're speaking. Konpeito is this Japanese sugar candy that looks like art of a tiny asteroid. It's like a ball of sugar with little spikes coming off of it, little nodules. And they're usually in pastel colors. This kind of sugar candy was introduced by the Portuguese. And the word comes from Portuguese and our theory, because in Japanese it's written as Konpeito with a P sound. But then in the subtitles, they write it confeito. It seems that's closer to the Portuguese pronunciation. And hence the bit of dialogue between Gato and uh, Carius, his wingman, where Carius says, leave me behind, go ahead, go on to confeito. No, wait, actually, I mean Solomon. And what I think has been done here is obviously once the Federation occupied this asteroid, this fortress, they renamed it. Aside from the resemblance between an asteroid and this candy, there is intent, I think, in renaming a place of such a horrible battle, a place that was very important to your enemy after something like candy. It's a way to diminish the significance of it. It's a way to make the place feel less serious, less important. Though they have not been particularly thorough in their renaming scheme, uh, during the battle, there's one brief line where one of the characters on the Albion says, like, oh, the departure of the Gundam has left the Vela Lavella sector undefended, or something like that. Mm -hmm. And Vela Lavella is the name of one of the islands in the Solomon Sea on Earth, and the site of one of the naval engagements between the U.S. and Japanese navies during World War II. So I would guess... Um, most things in the Solomon Sea sector have been named after islands in the Solomon Islands, and they've only renamed the big one. Because the Federation approached its renaming scheme with the level of consistency and follow-through that is typical of the organization. Ouch. Gato flashes back to that Battle of Abawaku, but in his dialogue he references Solomon a few times, because he is, of course, the Nightmare of Solomon. He was stationed at Solomon during the war and built his legend fighting here, both at the Battle of Solomon and presumably beforehand when Zeon was using Solomon as a base from which to launch raids against Federation forces in the area. One of the most intriguing things about this episode to me is the number of times that Gato and uh, his comrades refer to all the dead, the ghosts, the there is a spiritual overtone mm -hmm. or a uh, supernatural overtone to how they talk about all of this 
And yet we never once get a new type moment. There's no implication <laughs> of any new type anything, despite this constant refrain about the dead and their spirits in this place. Mm -hmm. uh, so they're strongly resisting <laughs> that part of Gundam. Uh, it almost feels like a fake out. There is one scene when the Drasi is about to attack Cole in the Gundam, when his like realizing that he's about to be attacked and then reacting quickly is shown in kind of a heightened way that if there were any other, you know, suggestions of new typeness might be read to confirm that. But it could also just be that he reacts quickly upon seeing the thing and indicators of something else going on are merely there to express how shocking it is and how quickly he responds. Gato makes numerous mention to the sacrifice. He really feels the weight of this place. And when you combine that with the flashbacks, it's like, oh, he is traumatized. Well, we see here from him for the very first time some indications of doubt, of uncertainty that he's doing the right thing. And yet the reason doesn't seem to be, oh, I'm about to kill a whole lot of people. Is that the right thing to do? It's more that he feels like he's riding the coattails of all of these dead heroes, that mm -hmm. he is going to be credited with this great victory, but that he doesn't deserve the full credit for this thing that's happening. And when he's having this realization, his hair is down. Have we ever seen him with his hair down? It looks so informal. He's unkempt. Well, he shows a rare moment of vulnerability here. And yes, he does express his doubt in terms of you know, standing on the shoulders of these dead heroes and taking credit for their accomplishments. His friend tells him, of course, that that's the fate of every commander. It's the fate of all of us, really, in a society. All sure. of us are standing on the sacrifices of generations before us. But in Gato's case in particular, you know, he occupies a position, a rank, which exists kind of somewhere between that of an officer who commands and that of a soldier who fights. He's clearly much more comfortable in the position of soldier, as proud as he is of this rank that he's attained. And ultimately, he resolves his doubts here by saying, that's not for me to decide. The decisions have already been made by Delaz and by other higher ranking people. And then right before he launches into the battle, he orders the flare shot up. And he says, if something that small is enough to defeat me, then heaven is not on my side. He has his doubts, but ultimately he says, well, fate will decide. It's almost monarchic. When someone becomes king, it's like, oh, well, if God wasn't on my side, I wouldn't have been able to defeat that other guy. Ties back into all his grandiose ideas about destiny. He sort of shaves off his uncertainties one by one. Should I do this? Should I do that? No, no, no. No, not that, not that, not that. All I have to do is go forward. He says this twice in the episode, all I have to do is charge forward and let the chips fall where they will. Gato's purpose in life is to redeem the sacrifices of all those dead comrades, but will piling more bodies on the altar of his own legend actually do that? It's an uncomfortable question. In quiet moments, he doubts it, and so he throws himself into activity because amid the thrill and danger of combat, at least, he knows what to do. He is the arrow that Delaz says can only be fired once, and he'll hit his target or not. As for the flare, I, I wonder about it, because it's certainly in keeping with Gato's flare for the dramatic, 
his uh, sort of chivalrous ideas about fighting and about facing the enemy. And when he first did it, I called him a dummy out loud. (laughs) But then you see all of these other mobile suit pilots that are escorting him and their reaction to it. And the morale boost they get from this is probably worth more than the element of surprise would have been. I assume this is how they signaled the start of an attack back in the old days of the One Year War. The whole thing feels like they're doing a reenactment, a deadly serious one. But for Gato's team, more than actually trying to accomplish something in the present moment, they are vindicating the struggles of the past. It's a very, very sad sunk cost fallacy moment that if they win here, then all of those deaths weren't in vain. And that runs through the whole episode visually. Constantly, we get these interstitial shots showing the wreckage that litters the Sea of Solomon. All of these broken ships, crushed mobile suits, and even a long lingering glimpse of a dead pilot. That scene and the dialogue around it were so well done. One of the most powerful parts of the whole episode. Carius describes this area as full of memories. And obviously, memories do not have physical form. (laughs) There are not little globs of memory floating around space. He means that being in this same place where they fought so many times before is triggering a lot of memories for them. But in a literal sense, all of this debris, all that's left from those fights, is like a physical representation of those memories. I also had a a pang. That long lingering shot of that body kind of implies that there are dozens or hundreds of mobile suits in this cluster, in this uh, shoal of debris that are exactly the same. The dead just sort of hanging suspended in space. And it gives the whole... Operation Stardust, this sense of being a comeuppance to the Federation, that they didn't even show their enemy the like basic courtesy of retrieving and burying or disposing of the dead. And now those same dead are providing cover for Gato to nuke their fleet. <laughs> I think this works on two levels. In the modern, pragmatic, practical sense, A lot of Stardust memory is about how the Federation won the war but failed to win the peace, how the Federation has not addressed the issues that gave rise to the conflict in the first place, that the Federation has not rebuilt the damaged colonies, that they have not cleaned up the wreckage or interred the bodies or done anything to bring the defeated soldiers of Zeon back into the fold, back into society, and so they've left them out in the cold where they have gathered, rebuilt their strength, honed their resentment into blades that they can use to stab the Federation in the back now. And then on this older, more spiritual level that Gato exemplifies, we are talking about angry ghosts. We are talking about uh, the revenants of this dead movement reaching out from beyond the grave, using Gato as their instrument to try to get revenge which is a frequent refrain in Japanese ghost stories, especially from the Middle Ages. Like in the tale of the Heike, like with the Tyra ghosts, the dead have to be propitiated. The dead have to be honored or else they will come back and they will haunt the living. They will destabilize the world and topple empires. 
And there's a way of interpreting some of Carius's statements that adds almost another like super layer to that, one in which all of these human conflicts become tiny and insignificant in the vastness of astronomical time, in the vastness of space and the universe. Because he mentions that it's as if the sea is weeping, that it's trying to tell them something. Gato says it's welcoming us, but it's possible Carius is feeling something different. And then he describes the sea as being young and needing time to calm, which is probably a reference to how little time really humanity has been in space. Mm-hmm. And then in the Admiral's speech, the Federation Admiral, he mentions the glorious gift of the vast cosmos. And, you know, he is accusing these Xeon remnants of spoiling that, of being this misguided tiny group spoiling it. But they're all spoiling it. We've we've seen the space junk everywhere. <laughs> like humanity is spoiling it. It's interesting to contrast Carius describing the sea as young, space is young, versus the speech that Admiral Wyatt gives at the beginning of the review when he talks about the long history of fleet reviews, the long continuity that they are part of. I thought that was a very interesting connection that he chooses to make, sort of tying back to, I can't even say the British Empire because it was long before (laughs) the British Empire, tying back to England. Also that the depictions of the Admiral, however brief they are in this episode, demonstrate this kind of sort of rarefied ideal of behavior. It just somehow feels more ridiculous coming from him than it does from Gato. (laughs) That in the first scene that he's introduced in this episode, someone is serving him tea in a porcelain cup. When the uh, captains or like sub-admirals with him come to tell him, okay, time to transfer to Birmingham. Uh, Yes, a gentleman must never be late. It just makes him seem very British. Fair enough. The structure of the episode here is a little unusual for Gundam. We rarely get this kind of bird's eye, almost newsreel-esque presentation. The way they have like the different fleets at the different positions, and they show us little snapshots of the commands and each side's plans and the way the different strategies intersect, and then drilling down to look at individual soldiers, but only very briefly to show them and how they're affected by these larger movements. It's like one of those old war epics, like The Longest Day or Waterloo, that used to be really popular, but have fallen out of vogue of late, where they try to present both the grand sweep of strategy and then the tiny little tactical skirmishes and the effects on individual people. The human moments in the scheme of these massive events. The only movie I've seen recently that has tried to do that kind of like multi-scalar presentation of events is, I think, Dunkirk. But all of it gives the events a kind of inertia. Like, think about what Ko and the whole crew of the Albion do during this episode. It's entirely reactive. There is no point at which they could have made a choice that would have changed the outcome of what is happening. In fact, practically no one involved could make any kinds of choices at this point that would change the outcome. All of this happens because at some point, probably months ago, at least weeks ago, Delaz outplayed Wyatt. On a strategic level, Delaz tricked Wyatt, his strategy was better, and now all of this happens. 
Oh man, I almost have too many different comments in relation to that. In contrast to your earlier comment about how Gato has decided he is the loosed arrow, all he can do is travel forward. Delaz is a survivor first and foremost. He acknowledges out loud to a subordinate that they've committed everything here. If they lose, if this does not go as planned, they will lose all the progress they've made, all of the material they've been able to gather. Delaz is a careful and meticulous planner. If they lose this, it will be back to square one, but he will still run if he must. He would rather start over from square one all over again than go down with the ship. He will not <laughs> go down with the ship. That is not his plan. They really drive home who Delaz is in this episode through the way he communicates with that Axis fleet and that line of dialogue you just pointed out. Because with the Axis fleet, they make a point of telling us he has his communications timed out down to like the second. Even with the lag, even with the uncertainty of space across these vast distances, he is so meticulous that he manages to get his message about welcome to the Earth sphere there the moment they can see Earth. And if the Federation brass really understood their opponent, they would realize that these scattered mobile suit skirmishes around the periphery are not random desultory attacks by a disorganized rabble. They are probing raids, carefully timed and precisely positioned to exhaust the soldiers on the picket lines before Delaz commits his main force. I love how they manage to convey the sense of exhaustion among the Albion's pilots. They are going without sleep. They are going without meals. Keith is falling asleep in his cockpit before he can even get out of his mobile suit. Cole is so tired that when someone hands him a drink and congratulates him, it's like he doesn't even hear them. He doesn't even have the energy to acknowledge them. This small interaction around the drink recalls the way Amuro behaves after his own massacres in episode 6 of First Gundam. It reminded me a lot of that episode of Battlestar Galactica, where their fleet keeps getting attacked every some number of minutes, and they keep having to launch fighters and jump the whole fleet. It's a pretty short span of time that they have, and it's not really enough time for anybody to get proper rest. <laughs> that similar sense of having to fight constantly and not really knowing when it will be over and just having to keep fighting and keep pushing through through your exhaustion. And that is, without a doubt, the point of these scattered attacks to make the defenders exhausted, to make them tired, to impede their judgment, to draw them out of position. The admirals are so proud. They've shot down 37 Xeon mobile suits, but 37 Zakus are a small price to pay in order to set up this decapitation strike that Gato launches. You mentioned earlier that Delaz simply outplayed them. Some amount of time ago, he out-strategized them. And what's so deeply frustrating watching this episode is you know that the Federation knows Delaz has one nuke. Yeah, the, what? <laughs> the Federation strategy here, like, and you know exactly how powerful the nuke is because it's yours. You're the ones who built it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. When the GPO-2 actually shows up and they all see it, they're like, oh no, the one thing we didn't account for in our strategy. And you knew he had it. 
Ho, ho, ho. Our master plan is perfect. The only thing that could disrupt it is if the enemy were to somehow possess a weapon like the one they stole from us last month and which they keep showing off in their propaganda videos. But what are the chances of that? And those Albion pilots flying themselves ragged while apparently you have dozens of gyms in reserve just hanging out waiting? Well, presumably the plan from the Federation was to lure Delaz's fleet in by presenting what looks like a weak defense and a target that is too tempting to pass up, the naval review. And then once the Xeon forces have committed their main fleet and broken through these weak defenses somewhere, then you have your reserves pounce upon them. That part is not a bad strategy. It's just that it's a strategy that doesn't work when the enemy has a Gundam with a nuke which you knew they had. And here's the scary bit looming over the end of the episode. The nuke is not Operation Stardust. Destroying the fleet was not Operation Stardust. And we know that because they show us the countdown timer for the operation on Delaz's flagship. It says 69 hours. 69 hours do not elapse <laughs> between when we are shown that and when the uh, nuclear attack happens. This was not even their final form. <laughs> it is really striking the contrast between the serene calm of the naval review, the confidence of Admiral Wyatt, all the men lined up on deck to salute, everything spick and span and shiny, and then immediately the next scene, just a few space kilometers away, these overmatched defenders desperately calling out for reinforcements as their satellites and ships and whatnot are destroyed. And of course, it's like a necessary part of the Federation's master plan here to sacrifice those soldiers. And that's how wars work. But at the same time, it really, really drives home how insignificant the lives of the soldiers are to people like Wyatt. And also to Delaz, right? It goes both ways. He is also sacrificing men by the hundreds in order to pull off this coup. I enjoy how they have synapses theorizing about what's going to happen evolve over the course of the episodes. That by the time we get to this episode, the beginning of it anyway, his theory is no longer that there's going to be some kind of direct attack on Jaburo, but Earth is his primary concern. He thinks they are leaving Earth undefended, and that Earth is the most likely target. At least in terms of this battle, he's not correct, though he may be for Operation Stardust, we don't know yet. I'm sure the Federation is also, to some degree, relying on these both defense satellites that are crude, as well as these automated defensive guns that they have set up, which are actually quite effective. They mm -hmm. take out one of Gato's wingmen. Yeah, the, um, the automated defense satellites are a little bit strange for Gundam. Um, if you can do that, why don't you do it everywhere? Right. Why don't we see a lot more of those? I always thought Minovsky particles interfered in some way and made that impossible. Maybe they have to be within a certain distance of like a crude satellite or uh, something else that can relay. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I think there's a lot in this episode that is directly calling back to the Battle of Solomon episodes of First Gundam. The way we see this like horde of gyms descending, for instance, the whole battle around Solomon, all of the different sectors, the scale of the fighting. Also, the way that Ko is like 
hunting Gato through the battlefield uh, while Gato attacks the space fortress is kind of an inversion of the way that Amuro and Shar were, especially at the Battle of Abawaku, where Shar is just desperately hunting for Amuro, while Amuro with the Federation forces is only trying to break through and get to the fortress. It's impossible for us to know yet whether Cole has judged this correctly, but he seems to have formed the opinion that if he can take out Gato, this will be over. Which, you know, Delaz clearly commands a great deal of respect on his own, and as we've said, is a master tactician here. However, Delaz is also very fully aware of the power of Gato's charisma, personality, reputation, and what a draw that is for their former soldiers. And so, could he have amassed this much enthusiasm and participation without being able to trot out Gato alongside him in his video broadcasts to be like, look who's with me, <laughs> Demon of Solomon. Mm -hmm. There were hints of this earlier in the series, uh, but a cameo in this episode seems to show that they're committing to it, that in some ways they want this episode to be hinting at the roots of the conflict in Zeta Gundam, to be sowing the seeds, <laughs> to be filling in some of the gaps about what happened after the One Year War that put us in the situation we're in at the beginning of Zeta Gundam. Stardust Memory being a show that takes place at the exact midpoint between First Gundam and Zeta Gundam could be either a sequel to First Gundam or a prequel to Zeta Gundam, and it's pretty clear now that it is a prequel to Zeta. And hints at some potential schisming between these Xeon revivalist factions. The big cameo in this episode being Haman. There she is. There's Axis. It's so funny. Like I know, I know they do this just to make her unmistakable, but it is so funny to me that she has not changed her style in three years after this. That She's wearing the exact same black bodysuit and cape that she will be in Zeta. Same haircut, same everything. Uh, she makes a couple of rather cryptic comments, some less cryptic. Uh, she refers to ideals and cold. I assume cold is the cold, empty vastness of space. This is probably a reference to the speech she gives in episode 47 of Double Zeta right before she dies. <laughs> Or maybe even, God, maybe even in the version of the script for that episode that never actually got made. <laughs> um, but yeah, she, she talks about the coldness of space and the warmth of Earth. And mentions how long must we wait. The comments of the sort of politicians or advisors with her seem to hint that they don't agree with everything Delaz has planned or is doing or stands for, but they think aligning themselves with him at this time represents their best opportunity. I think we can extrapolate that out to a lot of the higher level commanders who have joined up with Delaz for this mission. With the death of the Zabis and the dissolution of the Principality, there isn't a singular source of authority for what is Zeon. Delaz claims that authority, both by his rank, which I should note is uh, probably been self-awarded. He was a captain in that flashback. He's an admiral now. I wonder where that rank came from. It came from amassing a whole bunch of ships is how it came about. And it comes from Gato, who represents the like spiritual legitimacy of this movement. For the folks out in Axis, they have a competing source of authority. They have a Zabi. They still have Mineva. 
And then for folks like Shima who have their own fleets, they have their own sources of personal authority and they might have their own claims on Zionic authority. So Delaz's coalition here is people who are loyal to Delaz specifically, but also probably a lot of opportunists who think he's the best shot at doing something right now. The way the Axis guys talk about it, I don't think they expect him to succeed. I think they expect that he will weaken and destabilize the Federation at a moment when, if the Federation is not weakened and destabilized, they will become too strong for Axis to be able to challenge them when their own preparations are finished. And on an even deeper level, there is a core conflict in how at least parts of these two groups think about Earth. I don't really know how Delaz thinks of Earth. I don't think he has said much specifically about the planet. Gato has made some very uh, decisive comments about how he hopes he never sets foot on Earth again. He believes humanity shouldn't be on Earth anymore. They belong out in space, which is entirely counter to the awestruck, and I mean awe in the deepest, most spiritual sense, when I say awestruck, reaction of the Axis advance fleet arriving within sight of Earth. All of these soldiers rushing to the windows to look at Earth, even though it's barely visible in the distance. The captain barely manages to like keep himself in his chair. There is a fascination with Earth, a longing for it, even if they've never been there, even if they've never seen it before, that is about as opposed to Gato's attitude towards Earth as could be. W83 is certainly very interested in what all of these Xeon soldiers are thinking. What are their motivations? How do they feel about it? Their reverence for Earth or Gato's disdain for it? His spiritualism and fatalism, Delaz's cunning manipulations, Shima's underhanded plotting, and her uh, self-interested betrayals. Whereas on the Federation side, we don't see much in the way of ideology. We don't see much in the way of serious thought about the state of the world. They are the defenders of the status quo, and that's it. And that very nearly becomes text in the episode. During the scene where Mancha is torturing one of their captives, and the guy says, People like you who believe in nothing are going to be destroyed. This was another extremely powerful scene in this episode. There is an extremely graphic depiction of torture. I won't re-describe it. I assume that's a real trick that works. It involves using a pencil on someone's hands. While this is happening, the guard, who presumably was escorting the prisoner, is leaning nonchalantly against a wall, helmet pulled over their face, holding a gun, but not interfering in any way. They seem entirely unconcerned that Moncha is torturing the prisoner. Cole makes a brief attempt to intervene, to which Moncha replies, what, you're worried about breaking the treaty? Nobody ever wins by following the rules. Cole and Nina both look very grim. They look disapproving, but they don't take any additional steps or make any other attempt to stop what's happening. I feel like if this scene were done now, instead of that line about ignoring the treaty, no one ever wins by following the rules, Moncho would justify his actions by saying like, oh, the treaty doesn't apply to these guys. 
because they're not real soldiers because Zeon, you know, Zeon doesn't exist anymore. Because those are the justifications for torture that have been used during the War on Terror. Mm. Enemy combatants don't have the same rights under the Geneva Convention that soldiers do. And under the definitions that were developed during the Bush administration, I'm pretty sure most of the soldiers in the Dallas fleet, maybe all of them, could be defined as enemy combatants. It does pull our attention back around to the fact that the Federation violated its own treaties by having this nuclear weapon, forms a contrast to the Admiral's references to being gentlemanly, uh, when clearly that only applies in very specific spheres and to very specific kinds of behavior. There was one other scene like the torture scene and like the scene of all the bodies and debris in the Solomon Sea that felt very emotionally powerful to me. And it was the scene of all of the support crew, all of these mechanics and technicians crowded around the radios, listening to what little news they can get of the battle from the comments of the bridge crew and the comments of the pilots and the light on their faces and everyone just waiting. They will have lots to do when those mobile suits come back, but in the meantime... I really liked all the scenes of the mechanics in this episode on both sides, repairing, resupplying, prepping, doing all of the things they have to do to keep these mobile suits flying in between sorties. But then this scene showing how they're still invested in the fight even after everybody goes out and all they can do is listen to the radio. Yeah, I really loved the sense of busyness in those scenes of, of repair and resupply, the activity, the hum. I don't really know how to end our talk back. I feel like my last two comments could go in the outtakes. They're just kind of like interjections. I know there was a question you wanted to ask. Yeah, what is a jute or jute? Jute or jite is a kind of medieval police truncheon used in Japan. Mm. It's like a, it's an iron rod with a little like thumb coming off of it. Oh, a little hook. yeah. Okay. And you could use it to, as Ko does here, block a sword thrust. Uh, and then you can catch the blade of the sword in the little hook after you've blocked the cut. And with a twist, you can pull it out of the hands of the swordsman. Gotcha. And here, it's a little like a little beam saber blade on the underside of the barrel of the rifle that can be used to block a cut. Clever. Because how often in Gundam have we seen somebody cut the barrel off of a rifle? In mm -hmm. fact, we saw it just the other episode when uh, Burning does it to Shima. There's a pan of the Solomon Sea at one point with lots of stars and fields of debris in it. And I thought some of the debris fields were shaped to look like fish. <laughs> you know, they do this a couple of times in Gundam where we'll do a, a pan of space and there'll be there'll be discrete areas that are like really dense. Yeah, exactly. I think those are the sides. Oh. I think those are the clusters where the colonies are. That's why they're so dense in those like specific areas. Well, that would make sense in theory, right? That debris would tend to fall into Lagrange points. Mm-hmm. And viewed at a distance, the colonies would just look like stars. But I guess I'm wondering if these debris fields are meant to look like fish or if I'm just doing the thing where you're looking for shapes in clouds. <laughs> look, there's a, an ice cream cone. <laughs> there's a teddy bear. And that one looks like an arrow that can only be loosed once.
And now, Nina's research on confeto. I mean confeto. I mean Solomon. Confeto is a Japanese candy, a small, knobbly sphere, usually around 5 millimeters in diameter, made of sugar, water, flour, and often colorings and flavorings. Though there is no single definitive method or recipe for making competo, the basic process involves rolling a small core, formerly a sesame seed or poppy seed, now usually a sugar crystal, in sugar syrup. The core is rolled in syrup over and over again, slowly getting larger with each successive coating. Because the process is fairly irregular, it produces bumps on the candy's surface, which, through the accumulation process, become the pronounced nodules or spikes that make competo so distinctive. A few recipe websites I looked at said you can make a handful at home in two to three hours, but one large batch from a specialty sweets shop takes 13 to 20 days. And additions to the core recipe, like colorings or flavorings, or differences in atmospheric conditions, like temperature and humidity, can make it take longer. One of the links I'll share in the show notes is a sweet shop's explanation of their process, which includes pictures of what the competo in progress look like on day three, day five, etc. Competo is thought of as one of the standard Japanese sweets, to the point where it crops up in all kinds of different cultural contexts. The character of the sugar plum fairy in the ballet The Nutcracker in Japan is localized as competo no sei, or the competo fairy. In video games, the star bits in Super Mario Galaxy, gratitude crystals and star fragments in the Legend of Zelda series, star fragments in Animal Crossing, Max Revives, and Cosmog's star candies in the Pokemon series are all based on competo. In the animated film Spirited Away, the soot sprites eat them. They are included in the Japanese Ministry of Defense's emergency food rations, and in the Japan Ground Self-Defense Force's combat rations. Small boxes of competo are often given as gifts or favors at celebrations of weddings and childbirths. They are included in gifts from the emperor so often that there is a special name for it, onshi no competo, or onshi competo. Sidebar that for a number of big occasions, the emperor gives commemorative bonbonnieru, which comes from the French term bonbonnière, or candy box and in this instance refers to small, extremely beautiful and elaborate boxes, often made of silver, porcelain, or other precious materials, and delicately decorated or crafted in elaborate shapes like cranes, palanquins, helmets, and sailing ships, and then filled with competo. But what is their history? How far back do they go? There is general consensus that competo were introduced by the Portuguese in the 16th century, with competo coming from the Portuguese word confeito, meaning confection or candy. The Portuguese version often had a nut or piece of dried fruit in the middle, and if you search the word confeito now, many of the candies that come up have smooth, glossy exteriors. And the term seems to refer to everything from small sweets with candy coatings to sprinkles and nonpareils used to decorate cakes. However, I did find a post from a Japanese travel blogger who took a picture of a bag of Portuguese confeito that bear a strong resemblance to the Japanese variety. While it's possible that they had been traded before, the famous first incidence was in 1569, when Luis Frois presented a glass flask of competo to Oda Nobunaga in order to obtain permission to pursue his work as a Christian missionary. 
Freud would later witness the attack on the Buddhist temple Honoji, which ended in Oda Nobunaga's death. More than a century after Freud's gift, texts like the 1696 Guide to Meals for the Tea Ceremony by Genkan Endo, which included menus for elite, highly formal events, prescribe tea sweets like shaped rice cakes filled with bean paste, peeled chestnuts soaked in salt water, ginkgo nuts cured in spices, persimmons, pears, chestnut flour rice cakes, ostentatious by the standards of the day, but with little or no added sugar. Then again, a recipe for competo appears in the Nanban Ryorisho, or Southern Barbarian's Cookbook, a manuscript written in the 17th century or earlier. The fact is, Japan knew of refined sugar and had traded for it since the 8th century at least, but because there was no infrastructure for growing a sugar crop or refining sugar locally at the time, it was rare and expensive. So much so, in fact, that it was considered a medicinal ingredient rather than a culinary one. Other sweeteners were used when called for, things like arrowroot syrup, rice glucose, and honey. Although honey was rare too, there are records of an attempt at importing beekeeping techniques from Korea in 643, but these failed. And in the 18th century, honey was mostly processed and sold by farmers as a sideline, and all from wild hives. So, like sugar, it was mostly used medicinally until Western honeybees and beekeeping methods were introduced in the Meiji period. Sugar making was introduced to the Ryukyu kingdom in the early 1600s, and the cultivation of sugarcane and refining of sugar became a major part of their economy. And apparently the local diet, since Ryukyu and brown sugar was high in vitamins B1 and B2. The Portuguese had quite a few reasons to want to introduce sugar candy to Japan, besides simply giving an impressive gift to an important personage. Most of Japan's sugar trade would have been with foreign traders, and before the country closed itself off, that mostly meant Chinese and Portuguese. And Portugal already dominated the sugar trade in Europe, with sugar grown and processed on plantations in Brazil and other colonies. Iberia, and Portugal specifically, was known for having, quote, developed and maintained surprising ingeniousness and an almost disturbing creativity to vary and differentiate their sweets in all forms and colors and under the most evocative names. By introducing sugar-based candies and candy-making, they doubtless hoped to create a greater market for sugar, an extremely lucrative trade. White sugar, purchased in what was then Canton, would sell for two to three times as much in Japan, and brown sugar for 20 to 30 times as much. Sweets were also used to further the missionaries' work spreading Christianity. Candies were offered to entice the locals into engaging with the missionaries. These so-called barbarian sweets became local delicacies in cities like Nagasaki and Kyoto, and kompeto would later be used as a kind of higashi, or dry confection. Small candies served during tea ceremony to offset and complement the bitterness of the green tea. The close association of kompeto with foreignness and Christianity probably hurt its popularity later on. During the Tokugawa shogunate, many foods associated with Christianity were banned by the government, and some uh, alternate histories of the origins of kompeto were published, a few of them jokey, a few of them more serious, including one by Saikaku Ihara that offered a more politically palatable Chinese origin for the candy. 
By the Meiji period, its foreign origins were a plus, but were largely irrelevant, because Kompeto had become one of the classic Japanese sweets. That imperial practice of giving bonbonieru full of Kompeto to commemorate big events, that dates from the commemoration ceremony for the Meiji Constitution of 1889. The westernization, prosperity, and introduction of industrial food production in the Meiji and Taisho periods fueled sugar consumption, but also increased competition, as all manner of new sweets were introduced and made more widely available, including cakes, chocolates, and ice cream. The inclusion of Kompeto in emergency and combat rations dates from this time, during the First Sino-Japanese War and the Russo-Japanese War. Sources give a few different reasons for this, from simply making up a calorie deficit to the sugar and the cheerful colors offering a valuable morale boost. Several mention that by increasing saliva production, Kompeto made hardtack easier to eat. <laughs> if you're unfamiliar, hardtack is a hard, dry biscuit with a very long shelf life that was part of soldier and sailor rations for centuries. Supposedly, adding Kompeto to the rations was trialed in Siberia, and after concluding that the plain, uncolored Kompeto looked too much like ice, Regulations dictated that a set portion of the candies be colored yellow, blue, pink, purple, and green. According to the same source, the regulations still dictate the number and color of competo per packet. Quote, eight whites, three reds, two yellows, two greens as standard, amounting to 15 grams or more. I say supposedly because the source link for it is dead, but it does sound like the kind of thing that would appear in regulations, doesn't it? There was a decrease in sugar consumption during the Depression and the Second World War, but in the post-war economic boom, it came roaring back, as people had more money to spend on food and began to eat higher-calorie diets, with more meat, sugar, and oils relative to rice and vegetables. Despite the vast variety of candy and snacks available nowadays, Competo remains iconic. You can buy cheaper, mass-produced varieties at chain stores, or luxury, small-batch varieties from specialty candy makers. One such shop in Kyoto, Ryokujuan Shimizu, was founded in 1847 and managed to snag the website kompeto.co.jp. They release all kinds of special holiday and seasonal flavors. Chocolate for Valentine's Day, brandy for Father's Day, cherry blossom in March, lychee in September. My memory of trying them is that they were more cute than delicious a delight for the eyes, and a fairly normal sugar candy for the tongue. But I never got to try any of these extra fancy kinds, and I encourage you to try some if you get the chance. As for the use in Gundam, and renaming the asteroid Solomon Competo, this history turned up a few more layers of meaning. There is a blink-and-you-miss-it bit of wordplay. Competo can be written in hiragana or katakana, the two phonetic alphabets, but there are also ateji, or kanji for it, chosen mainly for their sound. In fact, there are three different ways to write kompeto in kanji, but all of them end with the kanji for sugar, pronounced tol in this case. But in the on-screen text that appears to tell us that we are in the kompeto restricted zone, they have written kon and pei with katakana and used the kanji for island for tol. Ah, clever. As for why they renamed it, not only does an asteroid resemble a piece of competo, 
And not only is there a gloating and patronizing air to renaming an enemy military base for a notably cute candy, there are also Competo's celebratory connotations. The name now celebrates a great Federation victory, and by extension, a bitter and bloody Xeon defeat. Next time on episode 8.10, The Form of the Danger is an Emanation of Energy, we research and discuss Gundam 0083 Stardust Memory, episode 10, and is this the episode where Keith dies? 57 hours and counting. Too close for rifles, I'm switching to sabers. Shield-chan? No, Shield-sama. Sharon Amaro, Redux. A man who is no more than a cog in the war machine could never hope to defeat me, a larger and shinier cog with delusions of becoming a flywheel or perhaps some kind of piston in a different war machine. When the kids are the only thing keeping a couple together. The final countdown. And an eye for 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 an eye. The danger is still present in your time as it was in ours. Mobile Suit Breakdown is written, recorded, and produced by us, Tom and Nina, in scenic New York City, within the ancestral and unceded land of the Lenape people, and made possible by listeners like you. The opening track is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. The recap music for this season is 80s synth rock guitar improvisation by Zombiefish. You can find links to the sources for our research, the music used in the episode, additional information about the Lenape people, and more in the show notes and on our website, GundamPodcast.com. You can get in touch with us on Twitter or Instagram at GundamPodcast, or by email to hosts at GundamPodcast.com. And thank you for listening. The wrong Gundam opinion this week comes from Sabrina, who says, I could fix Shima, but frankly, whatever's wrong with her is way hotter. First things first, our poor little introvert brains and bodies and feelings are so exhausted from this very fun but very social weekend that we had. Mm -hmm. And we did so much talking. Yep. And now, <laughs> come the work week, we're like, do not want to talk. <laughs> do not want to people. Yeah. Who knows, maybe Nina talking a lot while Tom just sort of like makes noises <laughs> will be our greatest episode yet. <laughs> the other thing I thought of was I saw this quote uh, yesterday about journalists and it made me think of podcasters too, or at least of us. Um, and I bet it's true of a lot of other podcasters, but that uh, many of us are shyly vain that we like very much want people to notice us and praise us and notice our work and think we're important but we are also shy and don't mm -hmm. want to be too much in the public eye mm -hmm. 
the other thing I saw yesterday was somebody's theory of why Twitter is the way it is. And it was people post like they're having a, a casual conversation with it, uh, with their friends, but reply to posts as if everyone is speaking as an expert on some topic in mm-hmm. some very like public way. Mm-hmm. coconut trees in my video game. Nice. I can make coconut milk now. I can drink coconut water when I go to the uh, dungeons. I'm like, whew, worn out from fighting all these monsters. I can drink a coconut water. You're, uh, you're on the cusp of pina colada technology. I don't know if this game has pineapples. How sad if they don't. In the confeito res- in the competitor is it blah, blah, blah. Oh, okay this is more of an outtakesy thing uh do you think that comment about duck dinner was about the fighting being a duck shoot i assume so i would actually like to check the japanese on that because i would not be surprised if it's a different play on words in japanese it was just translated this way for the English because sitting ducks, duck shoots. Yeah, because he's complaining about not having had time to eat. And so they're instead being like, well, you have to be satisfied with these easy enemies that, you're, that you've been picking off for we don't even know right. how long. I mean, like I said, it's, I, haven't, I haven't listened to the Japanese, but like hypothetically, it could be that he's saying like, oh, cleaning up all these zakos, all these small fry. Mm. I'll have a fish fry later mm-hmm. or something like that. Shooting fish in a barrel or catching catching easy to catch little fish mm-hmm. with a fancy net. Mm-hmm. <laughs> something. Something like that. 